fun. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, Sunday morning, studying the book of Colossians together. And we, in a series entitled, Give Me Jesus, and we come to chapter 3, and uh, a verse that we'll look specifically at verse 11, and uh, uh, you might have, in last week's study, said, boy, he skipped verse 11. And, um, and so here we come back to it in just kind of the, the flow of things this morning. Uh, and we'll look at the single verse there, but pick the context up a little bit by beginning in verse 9. And Paul writes uh, to us as Christians by the Spirit, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And then for this morning, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would, uh, in your grace, uh, assist with these massive fires that have been burning millions and millions of acres in California and, and now uh, coming to dominate in Washington State and Oregon. And we pray that uh, grace would be extended in allowing these things to get contained. We pray that you would protect property and human life. We pray that you would give wisdom uh, to this kind of uh, battle that's being waged against these fires, to the leaders that are making the decisions. And Lord, we pray that you bless and protect every single man and woman that's on the front line of these fires. And so we look to you to help us in all of this. And we pray as we turn to this single verse here this morning. We're thankful for all of your word, whether we study it in a chapter or five verses at a time or one verse at a time. We know that every verse is intended to accomplish something in us as your people. And we pray that what needs to be accomplished in our lives through verse 11 would be accomplished by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit speaking, not merely to our ears, but to our heart and into our relationship with you. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In contrast to the false teachers in the church in Colossae who were teaching that uh, upon becoming saved, that spiritual depth and spiritual uh, maturity was found either in uh, human philosophy or in uh, legalism or a pseudo-mysticism uh, or in asceticism or in just kind of abandoning any attempt to uh, uh, resist the flesh at all and just compartmentalize your Christian life into just your thinking and your insides. And, uh, and as these teachers were uh, in there and teaching these different things, none of which, as the Apostle Paul said, are of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. What Paul does now in, in ch uh, chapter 3, as we've been looking the last couple of weeks, uh, he informs the church in Colossae, and he informs us as well uh, that uh, true spiritual depths, true spiritual maturity 
uh, holiness, a victorious Christian life. He tells us where that's found. And he tells us, first of all, as we've seen in verses 1 through 4, Paul instructs us concerning who and what we are as Christians by virtue of being Christians, by virtue of being born again and indwelt uh, by the Holy Spirit. And he tells us in verse 3 that we died, and that is that as Christians we have died to sin, meaning that we're no longer under the dominion of sin's power. Sin no longer has the same hold over us that it once had over our lives before we became Christians. And that's always something good to be reminded of. He said additionally in verse 1 that we were raised with Christ, and that is because of our faith in Jesus, God has raised us up out of our formerly uh, dead condition spiritually and he has raised us up with the same power that raised Jesus Christ from, uh, from the dead in order to now live a supernatural life, a resurrection uh, life, a life like Jesus, a life that enjoys uh, a, a, a freedom from sin. And as a result, Paul said, all of our thinking and all of our affections as Christians should be set upon uh, heaven, set upon eternal things, set upon Christ and the things that have to do with Him. And then in verses 5 through 14, Paul then instructs us on how to live a life practically that is consistent with who and what we are by virtue of becoming uh, Christians. And he told us that we're to put off the sins and the deeds that once marked our pre-Christian lives and, uh, and marked our lives as a result of being physical descendants of Adam and Eve. And then second, he told us by putting on the character and the virtues that are consistent with our spiritual birth, that are consistent with being a new creation as uh, Christians. And in doing so, that we will uh, live life as God has intended us to live. But Paul, in, in this letter, he is not only concerned to correct the error of the false teachers that were teaching there in Colossae, but he's also very concerned for the unity of the church there in Colossae. Anytime you have false teachers uh, infiltrate the, uh, uh, a local church body and infiltrate it not with one false doctrine but with multiple uh, false doctrines uh, and, and they come in with all of these uh, contrary teachings, contrary to what the Word of God uh, uh, says, and as was happening there, that the, the depth of Christian experience is found in uh, legalism, or it's found in human philosophy, it's found in asceticism, it's found in uh, pseudo-mystical uh, experiences. And when you have that much false doctrine going on in a local church, you have a church that is not only in danger of splitting, you have a church that is in danger of splintering, of disintegrating, and uh, ceasing uh, to exist. Because false doctrine, unlike the Word of God, false doctrine always produces a them versus us uh, mentality 
within uh, the church. And as a result of that, especially in verses 11 through 17, some of which we looked at last time, Paul instructed the church in Colossae, and he instructs us concerning the part that we are to play individually in, uh, in being an asset toward the unity of uh, a local church. And, 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 and he will continue this theme, as we'll see in the next week or two, two as well. But in, in verse 11, Paul uh, declares to us essentially, in this vein of uh, the body being unified against every kind of attack that can come against it, uh, he declares here in verse 11 that as Christians, uh, those who've been born again and thus who are being conformed into the image of Christ, which is what he's talking about in verse 10, that we are not to bring our former fleshly, worldly, uh, pre-salvation prejudices concerning race, ethnicity, uh, nationality, social class, religious heritage, or sexism into our own personal Christian life or into the body of Christ as a whole. You notice in verse 11 that the Apostle Paul begins the verse with the word where. And that word where, again, it refers us back to verse 10. And again, uh, this is where Paul describes us as Christians as not only being a, a new man as Christians, but as having experienced a spiritual birth, having received a new nature, but that we are also, as Christians, being conformed progressively into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that it is only as we put off the old man and put on the new man that we can live like Christ in this world. And I think it's very, very helpful in any age in world history, and it's very helpful to us today. Uh, Paul informs us as Christians that in this new man, in this new nature that the Holy Spirit has produced within us and uh, that is being made ever more like Christ, that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. And when the Apostle Paul uh, here as he moves into, the, into verse 11, he, he writes here of distinctions or of prejudices that are not to mark our lives as Christians in our relationships uh, with one another. And Paul uh, informs us uh, that, first of all, that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew. And this speaks to any sense of superiority uh, that a Christian might feel toward another Christian on the basis of race, or on the basis of racial pride, or on the basis of ethnicity, or on the basis of ethnic pride, or on the basis of nationality, or national pride. And when Paul uh, uses Jews and Gentiles as his example 
to make this point to Christians then and uh, to us as Christians now. He uses the Jews and the Gentiles uh, as, the, as the example here he, to make his point. He chose one of the bitterest uh, racial and ethnic divides that existed in the ancient world at the time. There was considerable uh, mutual contempt on the part of the Jew toward the Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. And on the part of the Gentile toward the Jew. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles, and in many cases they did so not without uh, some significant uh, uh, justification. The Jews had a very, very long history of suffering at the hands of the Gentiles, already in human history, by the time Paul writes this, at the hands of the Assyrian Empire, at the hands of the Babylonian uh, Empire. And uh, the Jews had a lot to be bitter about in this regard as a result. Some rabbis uh, would wake up each morning and in their disdain for uh, Gentiles, among others, uh, they would teach their disciples to pray, and they would begin their day with this prayer. Uh, and, it, and, and some even practice it to this day as, as well. And the prayer that they would pray is, I thank you, God, that I was not born a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. Now, you may notice a considerable sense of superiority. Uh, in, a, in a statement like that. And, uh, but stop and think about praying that in all seriousness. Absolutely convinced of, of the truth of your superiority over those people. And there was, because of the already long history of anti-Semitism uh, by the Gentiles at that time, some rabbis went so far as to teach Jews not to help a Gentile woman in childbirth, because all it would do is bring another Gentile in the world who would grow up to then persecute uh, the Jews. And some went so far as to teach that the Gentiles had been created by God for one reason, and that was to provide fuel for the eternal fires of hell. Uh, that, that was all they could figure out was the use of a Gentile, was that we were essentially presto logs for uh, the eternal fires of hell. And this isn't hyperbole. This was an attitude of the Jew toward the Gentile and, and uh, represented among the Jewish people. It wasn't unusual for a Jew to refer to Gentiles as dogs, and in part out of pride certainly, but in part simply because Gentiles uh, lived up or lived down to uh, the description. And uh, in light of the fact that so much of the Gentile world did live like dogs, they lived like animals, uh, anything like a dog, anything uh, that their body would tell them to do, they simply obeyed it without any uh, resistance or any kind of restraint in the ways that the Jews uh, possessed that. And so by comparison, the Jews were a much holier people uh, than the Gentiles. 
and, uh, and the Jews referred to the Gentiles as the circumcision. And to call a Gentile uh, the, uh, the uncircumcision, to speak of the Gentiles as the uncircumcision, that was a racial slur. And, uh, and that was uh, to speak of the fact, you remember, circumcision for the Jews was given by God to them, and it was a representation or a reminder of the fact that they were in relationship with God. And when they would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, it was a, a reminder to themselves that these Gentiles uh, had no covenant or no relationship with God. No serious Jew would ever eat a meal with a Gentile. They would never enter into a Gentile's house. Uh, if they went into the market to buy something, they would avoid even bumping into a Gentile. And deemed that if they did, if their garment rubbed against the garment of a Gentile, that they were now, uh, they viewed themselves as ceremonially unclean. Uh, before God. Uh, not if they shook their hands, not if they gave them a hug, if merely their clothes came into contact with a Gentile. This is the level of separation uh, that occurred between the two peoples. And when the Jews would travel from the north to the south in the land of Israel or from the south to the north, the middle section of the land was the land of Samaria. It was Gentile uh, land. And rather than walk up through the Gentile land, if they were making their way from the north to the south, they would go all the way over to the Jordan River, cross over into what is modern-day Jordan, and then recross into Israel on the other side of Samaria to go to Jerusalem. That is the determination with which they were intent upon uh, not only not coming into contact with a Gentile, but not even coming into contact with the dust of a Gentile um, <clears throat> excuse me, territory. And of course, the history of uh, Gentile hatred toward the Jews, the persecution of the Gentile toward the Jewish people, all of this pales in comparison. Uh, it, it, the persecution of the Gentile world against the Jews is uh, very well known and nothing short of monstrous in, in church history. And during the time of Jesus in the land of, of Israel, the division between the Jews and the Gentiles was so great, the mutual contempt for one another had gone on for so many centuries. This was not something that had happened in uh, 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. This had been going on, uh, this prejudice and hatred of one another had been going on for hundreds of years between the Jews and the Gentiles, this mutual contempt for one another. And, and so great was this that Jesus one time in the course of his public ministry, he, in, in defiance of all of this, in a holy defiance of, of all of these things, he goes into Samaria, and he brings his disciples with him. And they go off to find something to eat in the city of Samaria. He sits down by a, will, a well, and he engages a Samaritan woman in conversation. And she is flabbergasted that he is a Jew, would speak to her as a Samaritan woman. And, he, and she poses just that question to him, uh, not only in shock, 
but in, in an attempt to educate this man who apparently doesn't understand uh, the centuries-old prejudice and division that occurs between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so she said, as recorded in John chapter 4, verse 9, she said to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then the Apostle John, who the Lord used to uh, uh, bring into existence the gospel according to John, he gives an editorial note related to it, and he said, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And he wasn't kidding. No dealings. So when Paul takes and he addresses the issue of racial and ethnic and national prejudice. He is talking about a situation with the Jews and the Gentiles that is way beyond anything that exists in the world today and in our country. Because even in our country, for all of the division that occurs and the prejudice that exists in that realm, there is still a crossing over. The walls are not completely built to where one group is having nothing to do with the other group on any level within the society. And so this is the example that he gives to us uh, here. And Paul wasn't kidding when he described the separation between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in the ancient world. He called it a wall of separation in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and yet the gospel brought them together despite these seemingly insurmountable and unsolvable uh, uh, centuries-long a history of animosity, uh, animosity toward uh, one another. Allow me to read how uh, Paul described what happened to Jews and Gentiles through the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that, is, that means out-and-out out hatred, that is, the, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to the, speaking of the Gentiles, and to those who were near, speaking of the Jews. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And as, as, just as God brings unity uh, and, and uh, eliminates... And, and the, the desire for that to be the case, prejudice on a racial level, uh, just as he did between the Jews and the Gentiles in the body of Christ, this is the same kind of thing that he does today. 
The second thing that he talks about is Paul says that in Christ there is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. And this speaks of, uh, to religious prejudice. And Paul is saying that we all stand as Christians, that we all stand equal before God, no matter wh- whether we k- became a Christian from a religious or a spiritual heritage or whether we became a Christian without any kind of spiritual heritage at all. He goes on to say, in Christ nor is there barbarian or Scythian. And here now he talks about the fact that there are to be uh, no social distinctions within the body of Christ, no prejudice on the part of social class or social position or cultural background or a person's uh, personal history. Uh, No prejudice or division on the basis of language or education or a lack of education, whether a Christian has uh, uh, graduated with a PhD from uh, Stanford before becoming a Christian or whether they graduated from the school of hard knocks. And by and large at that time, the Greeks were very, very much disdained, the barbarians and uh, the Scythians. And the Greeks uh, here, they, uh, they considered their own culture, their own language, Uh, to be vastly superior to any other language that existed in the ancient world and any other culture in the ancient world. And they looked down on anyone who did not speak their language, and they looked down on anyone who wasn't, uh, if not steeped in Greek culture, then conversant and well-conversant in Greek Uh, culture. And they considered all other languages other than Greek uh, to sound like bar, 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 bar. And it's interesting to, to realize that the word barbarian, Paul uses it here, the word barbarian has its origin in uh, the Greek, uh, ancient Greek world. It was a word that came into existence to describe on the part of Greeks anyone who did not speak Greek because they considered their language to be so beautiful that every other language is by comparison just sounded like bar, 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 bar. And uh, this unintelligible chatter in comparison to Greek and thus Thus, they called anyone who couldn't speak Greek, they called them barbarians. Now, the Scythians, these were barbarians among the barbarians. Ancient sources described them as living in wagons, uh, offering human sacrificing, uh, scalping their enemies, sometimes uh, skinning their bodies, drinking the blood of their enemies, using their skulls for drinking cups. When a king dies, one of his concubines is then strangled and buried with him. And at the close of a year after his death, 50 of his attendants are then strangled, disemboweled, mounted on dead horses, and left in a circle around his tomb. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, meet the Scythians. 
And do you want to talk about a people that were a little rough around the edges, uh, and, and especially compared to how the Greeks esteemed uh, themselves? And the point being that people can come to Christ and be born again from every sort of background. Uh, there, and uh, whether in modern times they would come from uh, uh, being saved out of a drug cartel or being uh, a terrorist. And, uh, and be, once they become a Christian in the eyes of God, they're on an equal footing with everyone else spiritually. He says further that in Christ there is neither slave uh, nor free. And so here he talks about the fact that there are to be no uh, socioeconomic distinctions or uh, barriers within uh, the body of Christ. Uh, there aren't to be, as we uh, uh, kind of have the categories in the United States of America, we have five categories for socioeconomic categories. You have the wealthy, you have the upper middle class, you have the middle class, you have lower middle class, and you have the poor. And so that's how our culture deals with uh, all of that. And Paul is saying that, uh, that we are not to come to conclusions within the body of Christ or anywhere, but he's talking about the body of Christ here, not to come to conclusions about people's value, their value to God, their value to the body of Christ based upon their income level or the job that they uh, hold. Uh, you may, be, may or may not be aware of the fact that in the Roman Empire, uh, there was uh, on a continual basis for a very long period of time uh, at their peak that there were somewhere between five million and seven million uh, slaves. Uh, one out of three people within the confines of the land of, uh, of Italy was a slave. One out of five in the Roman Empire uh, as uh, a whole. And uh, the Roman slavery was not based upon race. Uh, it constituted uh, every kind of person that existed within the Roman Empire and even beyond the Roman Empire. And although uh, most of these slaves uh, were engaged in uh, manual labor, uh, some of them were professionals. They were teachers or they were household doctors or engineers and uh, held these kind of uh, prominent positions, those slaves within within a household. But of course, it, is, it was still a degrading institution, whatever the circumstances or whatever the position the slave might have. And of course, it engendered in both slaves uh, and in free this deep sense of inequality between the two groups. And this was just something that was normal in the Roman Empire. Nobody blinked at these kind of distinctions. Nobody blinked at this kind of prejudice at all within the Roman uh, Empire. Now, God did something very, very interesting in the early church in the context of, of all of this. And the Bible says that the gifts and uh, that, that God gives spiritual gifts to those that are in his body uh, and that become Christians. He gives them severally as he wills. He determines 
who he makes apostles, he determines who he makes prophets, who he makes evangelists, who he makes teachers, and who he gives individual gifts of the Holy Spirit to, uh, which gifts he gives to which person within the body of Christ. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. And so it wouldn't be unusual in the ancient world uh, for uh, here you have this uh, estate, whatever size it might be, and you have uh, the slave owner who is a Christian. He has a slave who is also a Christian. On Sunday, they go to church together. And yet, in the economy of the church, in the kingdom of God, God could give the slave a higher position in terms of authority, a more prominent gifting within the church for on that Sunday and completely reverse the role between slave and master that was the role during the rest of the week and have a calling upon a slave owner within the body of Christ where he would have a position that was under the authority of a slave or that he, he was uh, a position of less prominence than maybe even his slave within, uh, within the church. And when slave or free become Christians, Paul is saying that they became equal brothers and sisters spiritually in the eyes of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 12. For as the body is one, and has many members. But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. Uh, James, in writing his New Testament letter, had a gift for clarity and pointedness. And uh, he condemns this whole uh, prejudice on the basis of uh, economics, on the basis of wealth, on the basis of the position a person uh, holds in life. Uh, he condemns it very strongly. Allow me to read a section of James chapter 2. He said, my brethren, do not hold the faith uh, of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in the good place, and then say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, he's, he's writing to Christians. And then he goes on to close the section by saying, and if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, Paul doesn't write it in, in verse 11, but elsewhere in Scripture, Paul broadened all of this even into uh, the sexes, and that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor free ma- female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and Paul is not in any way invalidating uh, biblical roles within marriage or biblical roles within uh, the church. Uh, But what he's saying is before God, there is no inferiority of one sex to the other. There is no difference in terms of their spiritual status in God's eyes. And each sex is to uh, esteem the other sex uh, highly and, and, and with respect as God's sons and as God's daughters. Now, the apostle closes the verse by giving us the reason why all of this is true. And he tells us why when he says, but Christ is all and in all. And when he says, but there, it's in other words, the reason why all of these prejudices that so mock and so dominate the fallen world that we uh, live in, and they all have their origin, it's sin, they all have their origin in, in the old man. They have their origin uh, in, in the flesh, the corrupt nature that we have inherited from Adam and Eve. And the reason that these things are to no longer mark a Christian to have no place within the body of Christ uh, at all is, he tells us, because Christ is all. Christ is all. Christ is all in the body of Christ. And all of these distinctions and all of these divisions and all of these prejudices are to be to be completely overwhelmed by the glory and the person of Jesus Christ in the body of Christ. It is, it is to make anything else that we would make the focus of a church or anything else that, that we would try and, uh, and advocate for within the context of something that is identified by His name and that He is the head over it. That Christ is all is intended to simply overwhelm all of these prejudices for the pathetic small thing that they are in comparison to the greatness of the glory of God that is that we are in the midst of when we gather together as uh, Christians. And you can take all of these prejudices, even the prejudices between the Jews and the Gentiles, as long-lasting as they were, and as uh, centuries old as they were, as firmly entrenched as people were in them, take any prejudice. And when we become a Christian, uh, Christ is all comes in like a great tidal wave uh, into our lives. And all of these prejudices are like little feeble sandcastles on the shore. And the tidal wave is intended to come and wipe them out with the glory of Christ that is intended to replace uh, all of it is our focus. Him is the focus, the supreme focus in our Christian uh, life. And Paul is saying that in the kingdom of God, Christ is all that matters. 
He is the soul and He is to be the, the supreme preoccupation of every Christian. And, and not all of this other stuff. And, and it isn't that we cease to be male or female. Of course we don't. It isn't that we uh, cease to be a particular race or a particular ethnicity. But Paul is saying that these are not our identities as Christians, and these are not to be what, how we view other people supremely as opposed to viewing them on the basis of their godly character and viewing them on the basis of the fact that they are our brothers and sisters in God's family and they access these privileges with God's invitation exactly as we have. And so all of these human distinctions are overruled by virtue of their union, and our union to Christ. And that's how much Christ is to mean to the individual and being like Christ and what Christ is to mean to any and every uh, local church. The body of Christ, no one is spiritually inferior to another in the eyes of God. We're different in our giftings. We're different in our callings. We're different in our... uh, our talents and, and in our uh, abilities, and, uh, but uh, n- no one is inferior to another spiritually or in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, to live like this now as Christians in the body of Christ now uh, is, uh, and, and a local church is to experience a little taste of heaven uh, in John, in the Revelation, gives us this glimpse of the heavenly scene that we're all headed toward uh, one day in, uh, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And John wrote, and now when is he seeing this heavenly scene? He said, now when he, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth and all of heaven uh, will be united around him and and possessing this kind of a gratitude toward him and in the heavenly scene all of these other distinctions nobody makes mention of them Uh, We're all so thrilled to be in heaven ourselves. We thrill at the diversity of the body of Christ that is so needed. But what heaven is all about is it is Him. It is Him. Uh, And and Christ is uh, all. And And when Isaiah sees Jesus in the Old Testament, and it was Jesus that he saw in Isaiah chapter 6, 
And he sees him in in his glory, and he declares, "Uh, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, when you see God, when God is given the place that he's supposed to have in any given situation, there's no time for anything else. What are we going to exalt above God in worshiping Christ in a local church or in the body of Christ as a whole? John himself, as he writes the revelation in his own record, he knew such intimacy with Jesus during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. Then he sees him in the heavenly scene in all of his glory, and he says, I fell down before him as dead. This is the greatness of Christ. This is the beauty of Christ. Christ is all. And, and, and this is the, the, the focus of heaven. And imagine... As you see that scene there in the Revelation, imagine as all of that worship is being directed toward the Lord, if someone were to stand up in the middle of that heavenly scene and then declare themselves to be better than some other Christian there on the basis of race or ethnicity or nationality or a social class or on the basis of sex. It would bring the whole scene to a grinding halt. It would be an absolute embarrassment You talk about a dollar waiting on a dime. I mean, there will be no comparison to bring something like that up when the alternative is to glory in the glory of God. Everything would grind to a screeching halt and everyone would go and look over at the person and say they have no sense of what they are in the middle of to bring something like that up in the midst of this situation. And if it would be out of place in heaven today, then it is also completely out of place now in the heart of any Christian, including my own, or in any church that is associated with the name of Jesus Christ. The second thing that holds all of this together is not only that Christ is all, Uh, but uh, that he is in all. That is, that Christ indwells every single Christian by his Holy Spirit. And and many of us have walked with the Lord for a long time. We say, okay, uh, I I probably said it ten times already in the sermon, the fact that what makes us Christians is that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we listen to it, and it kind of becomes like this uh, piece of theology that we agree with. It's our own. We, be, uh, we, we believe all, all of, of that, but it, it's more than just a theological truth in, in, in just that way. And you just stop and think that God Almighty indwells every single individual Christian by His Holy Spirit. And He does so no matter our race or our ethnicity, our nationality, our social class, our uh, whatever has been a part of our past, no matter uh, where we've been, what we've seen, what we've done, even if we were a Scythian. And the point is this is that if God has deigned 
to indwell people like you and I across all of the broad diversity of mankind to indwell them, then can't we get lost in the glory uh, of that and in the glory of our salvation and our Savior and to get along? He's not asking us to indwell one another. He's already done that. But for us to get along by, on the basis of these two great things, the understanding that Christ is all in the church and that He is uh, in all. And of course, we can get along, and we do, and I hope we do. Now, these two statements, Christ is all and in all, are what holds this big old wondrous thing called the body of Christ and the kingdom of God uh, together, together. The immense diversity that is under uh, this umbrella of the kingdom of God and Christianity. And it is this Christ is all and in all that not only holds us together, but it's what makes all of this different from everything else in the world. And you know the world that we live in, uh, in, it's a fallen world, and it is like never before in my lifetime, it seems, intent upon dividing, intent upon uh, destroying. And we live in this world as Christians. And so we need something to hold us together that is greater than all of these old man, worldly, fallen world things that would tear us apart. And God has supplied it uh, to us. And he describes it among many places in the New Testament. Paul does in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then here it is. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And Paul lists this this seven-band kind of uh, uh, unity that binds us together as Christians, that we're one body, we're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We We share the same hope of our calling, that is heaven. We share one Lord, we share one faith, we share one baptism, we share one God who is the Father of all of us as Christians. And the idea is if that won't unite us, which is Paul's great concern in writing to the church at Colossae here, then nothing else in the world will unite us. But it does unite us. And praise the Lord that it does and that He has provided it uh, to us. The world has none of these things with which to unite itself in the face of all of these various prejudices that we've talked about here today. Only the Christian possesses those things. Only God has provided a cause for unity that is infinitely greater than anything 
that would cause us to divide. And the, and the fact that the world does not possess a deep and meaningful means by which to unite uh, people is just one more tragic, terrible consequence of the fall. But we do possess it. And called by God to model a different kingdom to the world and to do so in this way. And then in doing so, in making uh, Christ all and in all, and that the focus of our individual lives and the focus of the church, that's what we can unite around in all of our diversity. And then as the Holy Spirit works in our lives to not resist the differences that are among mankind or among us as individuals, but to glory in the necessity of the diversity of the body of Christ. But we will never know that beauty. We will never appreciate it if prejudice and division keeps us from interacting with one another in the way that God calls us to. And I, don't te I teach this simply because <clears throat> it's what we come to in going through the book of Colossians. I'm not addressing a local problem here that I'm aware of, but I do know my heart, and I think your heart is like mine, and you can't hear these kind of things too often, especially in our, our present climate um, of things. And my zeal in terms of, of bringing this thing out is, is, if, is a zeal that Christ would be glorified. Do you ever see us in this church in 35 years exalt anyone or anything other than Him? For one service. You haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. And this is why. Because everything else will be washed away that needs to be washed away and refined in the glory of His presence and who He is and who He's intended to be among His people. And to the degree that these kind of things exist within our lives, then we have the potential to mar representing that, uh, the kingdom of God before the world in a, the way that we want to and the way that the world so desperately needs. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, and the good news for you is that no matter who you are uh, or, uh, or who you aren't, uh, that every single human being is equally welcomed by God to repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and to be born again by the Holy Spirit and enter into the kingdom of God, enter into God's family. Paul wrote in the same vein uh, here as we're looking here in Colossians in Romans chapter 10 verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same, uh, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon Him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus saying the same thing in the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is not only the only way to be saved, but it is the only answer to racism in our own lives, an ultimate answer to racism in our own lives, or racism as it exists within the world. And if you'd like to give your life to Christ this morning, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, also on either side of the screen, out in the courtyard. And they'd love to pray with you to begin this relationship with God that you have been created for. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we love You. Jesus, we love You. We thank You that You have given us You to worship. For our lives to be conformed into Your image. For You to be the great focus of our lives. Knowing that everything else will pale in comparison and everything in our lives will be put right as we simply give you that place within our lives individually and as a church. And Lord, we feel the strength of this passage. We live in very divided times. And we pray that you would use this time this morning as needed to eradicate <clears throat> excuse me, any kind of prejudice that we might hold that Paul has described here and in doing so in any way misrepresent you in the world and mar uh, the picture of what you want to do in every human life and in our lives in representing you before this, uh, before this world that we live in. Thank you that your Bible, as we go through it, just covers anything and everything and all of it is needed. We thank you for this time this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.